seeking the Lord's help, we turn back to the chapter we read, Romans chapter 5. <coughs> Romans chapter 5, and uh, looking again at verse 10. For if when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. We have spent some time now in our study of the atonement. This, I think, is our fourth week. And after an introductory week, we (coughs) considered the cause of the atonement and then the necessity of the atonement. And today I want us to consider uh, the parties to the atonement. Who is involved in it? And in what way are they involved? And uh, by this question, really, we are dealing with the heart of our subject. And we're dealing with the nature of the atonement. Not just what has caused it and was it necessary, What is it? And we are getting closer to that heart of the subject. And hopefully next time we'll still be looking at the nature of the atonement with a different aspect. And move to consider the substitutionary nature of the atonement. And how that impacts upon our understanding of this great gospel truth and of the work of our Saviour. This week we confine ourselves to this one area of the atonement. The parties involved... So we can begin to get to grips with the meat of what the atonement actually is. And I want to give three answers, if you like, to the question of who is involved. First of all, our answer is the persons of the Trinity in distinction. Secondly, the being of God directly. Thirdly, the people of God Indirectly. These are the three ways we want to answer the question. Who is involved? Who are the parties involved in the atonement? First of all then. The persons of the Trinity. In distinction. That is distinct. Each one. With a engagement. Involvement and interest. And so the first answer is to say. That the atonement is something that involves all three persons of the Trinity. Um, We can speak about God, meaning the being of God. And we will come on to that in our second point. We can also speak discreetly about each person. And we have done so already in the introductory lecture to some extent. Now, if you're thinking of the atonement and the persons of the Godhead, then perhaps rather inevitably and certainly not improperly of itself, a natural focus for our minds tends to be upon the second person of the Godhead, upon the Son of God in our nature, accomplishing the atonement. And that is largely correct. And what we're saying in this is not to take away that focus, but to Broaden it to some extent. You see, we must keep a Trinitarian view of the atonement here now as well. 
A few, week back, a few weeks back, we mentioned in terms of the, as it were, the, the divine planning, if we can think of it like that, of the afford the atonement, how Father, Son and Spirit are involved and engaged in agreeing together to do this great blessed act. But in the outworking of that grand scheme as well, each of the persons of the Trinity has a active role to engage in. It is not simply they are involved in the planning and then the rest in time as it were is left to the Son. No. We can think first of all of the first person of the Godhead, the Father. It falls to the Father uh, to, as it were, call in the debt, to require payment of the debt of sin. That is the Father who makes that requirement for payment. And then again, it falls to the Father also to then accept the payment when it is made in its fullness, when it is made in the atonement. It is the Father who, as it were, acknowledges that the debt is paid, that the atonement is made. Now, in doing so, certainly the Father is acting on behalf of the entire Godhead. God is offended at sin. Not only the Father is offended at sin, but the Son is offended at sin. The Spirit is offended at sin. But the Father then, uh, and we see this particularly in the language of the Saviour, even upon the cross, how he addresses twice in the scenes of the cross, himself to his Father in heaven. And so the Father requires the payment and accepts the payment when it is given. And this is supported by scriptures famously in Isaiah 53. The Lord hath laid on him the iniquity of us all. That is, he has laid upon him the burden that he must now make satisfaction for it. He must render an atonement for the iniquity that is laid upon him. Further on, yet it pleased the Lord to bruise him. He hath put him to grief. It is then an active engagement of the Father in the atonement. The Son, of course, to come to the second person, is the one who then meets that requirement and who makes that payment. And how precisely he uh, accomplishes this atonement is what we'll be looking at, Lord willing, at a, on another evening in more detail. But we are, of course, thinking here about his obedience, both his obedience in keeping in the keeping of the law and his obedience whilst under the curse of the law. Some is called his active and passive obedience, his obedience in keeping the law and his obedience underneath the curse of that law. Thus, he is fashioning an acceptable atonement to God. And the Spirit too is involved. We keep in mind that breadth of the scope of the atonement, not confining it only to the cross, but spanning the whole of the life of Christ in his humiliation. The spirit who fashioned the substance of his body when in the womb of the virgin. The spirit who indwelt the son as no mere man was ever indwelt. Luke 4 and Jesus being full of the Holy Ghost returned from Jordan 
and was led by the Spirit into the wilderness. Or John 3.34, For God giveth not the Spirit by measure unto him. And so it was by the Spirit, not only that he was conceived, but by the Spirit he was baptized, by the Spirit leading even. He experienced the temptation, and by the Spirit that he then offered himself without spot to God. And so that is our first point. Who is involved? The Trinity. Secondly, who is involved? And we say the being of God directly. I'll try to explain a little bit of what I mean in distinction one point from the other. Because from what we said at the first point, the second point might seem superfluous. We're coming here to an area that some of the theologians call the objective atonement. The atonement as an objective accomplishment. And what they are doing there, as we like, is just for a time in their uh, teasing out of the finer doctrines, they are laying aside or putting their eyes away from us. And the impact upon us of the atonement. And they are saying yes the atonement is for man. But the atonement is to God. And that is its primary objective. That is primary direction. It is God word. The atonement is not primarily man word. It is God word. And I want to try to bring that out a little bit in different ways. If we were to say, we can say then, if you think of the direction, the atonement is Godward. Now, if we were to reverse that, if we were to change that direction and make the atonement, if you like, a movement towards man, we get into all sorts of confusion and hot water theologically. Imagine I was to say, God atoned me. Or I was atoned, or I've been atoned. There's something immediately in the sense that jars upon us. We don't speak like that, and there's good reason for it. Something's wrong. And what is wrong is that that sentence implies that we are the ones being appeased. That we are the ones being placated, being calmed from some righteous anger. There are other words that sometimes we use to overlap with the atonement that we can use in both directions, and it's fine. We can say, for example, I have been reconciled to God. And we can say, God has been reconciled to me. It's a two-way street in that area. But it doesn't work so well with atonement. We can't say God has been atoned. For me. And I have been atoned for God. That implies that God has had to. Somehow satisfy us. That God himself had something to atone for to us. And he hasn't. And so even, the, even in the way we don't use the word atone or atonement very often. But if we sometimes do have it slip out in our conversation, if you hear it, you might hear a boy 
who is out playing with his ball and he breaks a window. Oh, he's going to have to atone for that. Because he's the one at fault. And therefore he is the one who is doing the atonement. The atoning. Not the one being atoned. The one who carries the fault is the one who needs an atonement to be made to the person who is offended and has been offended by his fault. Atonement always happens then in this movement from the guilty party to the offended party. That is the direction of the work of the atonement from the guilty party to the offended party. And that is why we say the atonement is Godward. And that's why we have this point as the being of God directly. Because in this way we are not making distinctions between Father, Son and Spirit. God is offended at our sin. God requires an atonement to be made. If you think of the whole system of the sacrifices of the Old Testament, you will see that this is exactly the pattern that is pictured there in all that is done in that wonderful lesson for us of the Old Testament sacrificial system. It is Godward. The movement, the movement is Godward. The sacrifice of the Old Testament are designed primarily to satisfy God. They are not designed primarily to make the people feel better. They are designed to satisfy God, to appease God, because it is God who is angry with their sin. It is God whose law has been broken. It is God whose holiness has been outraged. It is God whose very being has been assaulted by the rebellion of sin. And therefore the atonement is a Godward action in the Old Testament. Visually, literally, from the entranceway to the tabernacle into the Holy of Holies. And so the atonement, that is the satisfaction due for that guilty sin, that satisfaction must then satisfy God in the first instance. And that is the very emphasis that we have in our text here. In Romans 5.10. If when we were enemies we were reconciled to God by the death of his son... Much more being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Notice, we are told that reconciliation happened to God. And it happened without anything changing in us. It happened while we were in fact still enemies. But our reconciliation to God was affected. And we were still enemies. It hasn't touched us, as it were, in our experience subjectively yet. So does that mean there's been no atonement made? No. Objectively, there has. God has been atoned. And it comes out here 
as this wonderful reconciliation that has been effected. And of course it happened, we know how, not by these blood of bulls and goats that cannot take away sin, but by the death of his son. And that is how objective it is. Nothing about us changed. We remained as much the enemies of God after the death of Christ as we had been the enemies of God before the death of Christ. We were in Adam. So does that mean that the death of Christ had no effect? Certainly not. The effect was Godward. The effect was that God was now reconciled. And that's the major thing, friends. That's the heart of it. That's what the atonement is working. That's what it's for. And so the whole priestly system is designed to take the offering from the worshipper at the door of the tabernacle and then to make presentation of that offering not to the worshipper but to God. So a sweet-smelling savour rises from off the altar and the blood goes in and is sprinkled inside the building of the tabernacle. The worshipper standing at the drawn curtains could scarcely see what was going on. The fencing round marking the outer court meant you couldn't see over it. There was one entrance. Maybe a few people at most could stand there and watch what was happening. By and large, you couldn't even see it. You handed it over to the priest. The priest took it from you at the door. You didn't step beyond that. They went in. You could maybe see them as they began to prepare the animal. Maybe see them as they began to lay it upon the altar. But after that, what could you see? It was not for the people. It was for God. But though they couldn't see it, it was still done. And something wonderful had still happened. Consider this then, the atonement is not, therefore, only accomplished when you or I become a believer. That's not when atonement happens. No, God was reconciled fully In Christ, satisfaction was accepted for the Christian, whole and entire, without even the very least input from you or me. Without the the very first beginnings of a prayer of repentance. Without the very first cry of the exercise of faith. Without the very first flicker of conviction of sin. It was accomplished whole and entire. Now we'll be coming to apply that point again very soon. But notice how it is done. Notice this. Notice how it is done. God 
is, as it were, inspecting the work of Christ. And his keeping of the law and his suffering under the curse of the law. Obedience and obedience rendered perfectly in all aspects. He knew that to take off all his ire, he had to be sure. He had to be totally and utterly sure that Christ Jesus had paid for it all. That nothing was to be missed. That never again, never, never, never would a there be any cause for him to reignite the fury of his wrath. Never again would he be in a position to have to return to the surety and demand more atonement from him. So he was sure and thorough and satisfied and God was atoned. And that atonement, as this great work, has God as its primary object in view. It is more than a reconciling. That can be mutual, that can be equal. But what good would it be if we said, I am reconciled to God, but God is not reconciled to me? The atonement includes the reconciliation. But it is the accomplishment of his whole life directed towards God and accepted as an atonement by God. God has been atoned. And that grand fact is the beating heart of this great gospel. It is on the basis of that fact being an accomplished fact that reconciliation is now offered to sinners in the gospel. We are not peddling a work that is yet to be done or a work that is nearly done but must be finished off by you, by your repenting, by your seeking, by your believing. We are not seeking the involvement of the sinner to do something to atone God for their sins. If only you repent, God will be reconciled to sinners. No, we are presenting the very greatest fait accompli. We're not saying it must be done. We are crying out as those who are ambassadors, as heralds, it has been done. God is atoned. God has accepted it. God did it all. And our place then as a gathering here tonight surely is to stand in awe. Perhaps it's not the sort of application where we make in the usual way we come to this area of life or that area of life, but take off your shoes from off your feet. For the place where you stand is holy ground. What are you seeing? You're seeing a marvellous thing. You're seeing the face of God as he is atoned You're seeing a fire, and yet the bush is not consumed. Why? Because God is atoned. So in the atonement, we see 
the God who has wholly accepted payment for the debt of guilty sinners. You have no hand in this. I have no hand in this. We have added nothing to it at all. And yet it is done. It is done and it will never ever be undone. And that takes us thirdly to the people of God. But we say indirectly. The being of God directly. The people of God indirectly. In what sense then do we have anything to do with the atonement? Surely it must have something to do with us. Well certainly But it is a secondary sense in the sense of the benefits of it are then graciously applied to us. But the atonement itself, the accomplishment, you cannot touch that. You have no hand in it. One of the theologians then speaking about when it comes, as it were, to to us, what what do we have here? He says the fact... That Christ reconciles God to the sinner. That's done. That then results in a reflex action in the sinner. In virtue of which the sinner may be said to be reconciled to God. Atonement accomplishes God reconciled to the sinner. And it is as a reflex to that, a response to that, that we may then be reconciled to God. And yet, this is Berkhoff, and he puts it well, but Paul in 2 Corinthians 5 puts it like this, to wit that God was in Christ, reconciling the world unto himself, not imputing their trespasses unto them, And hath committed unto us the word of reconciliation. Now then we are ambassadors for Christ. As though God did beseech you by us. We pray you in Christ's stead. Be ye reconciled to God. Notice the order that we have been advancing. First, God in Christ reconciles the world to himself. He does it. Then the ambassadors of Christ beseech sinners in God's stead. Be ye reconciled to God because God has already been reconciled to sinners. But that's the basis of the gospel message. We do not say God must be reconciled. Come and repent and God will be reconciled by your repentance. No. God has already been reconciled wholly to all his people for all their sins by Christ alone. It now is a call to seek out those who are of the elect. It is for them to embrace this, to accept this, to abandon their own efforts at providing their own kind of atonement, their own kind of satisfaction to God, to abandon their own rebellion and their own self-made salvations and be reconciled to God. Because that's where the barrier now lies. With the cross and its accomplishment, God is reconciled to the world. 
And so we talk about the objective atonement. It is to God, yes. But we can also say, friends, it is for me. I have had no hand in it. We can say how how it's all done and dusted as we see, as we say. It's accepted, it's verified, it's completed, it's paid, it was demanded, it was received before you or I knew anything about it. It's done. Another has done it for us. And so it follows then that you or I cannot impact the atonement One iota. And that's a good thing. We cannot sin ourselves out of something that was accomplished without our hand being anywhere near it in the first place. We have no way of accessing it or changing it or affecting it. We have no way of undoing it. Your hand was not near it to create it. You had no, nothing to do with it. Your hand therefore cannot touch it to ruin it or to spoil it. You cannot undo the work of God in accepting this payment from his son for the sin of the world. You cannot undo the work of the son in rendering a full satisfaction as demanded by God. And you cannot undo the work of the Spirit in supplying every necessary support to Jesus in order to accomplish his atoning work. We can do none of these things. What part do you or I have in any of this? Yours is not to contribute anything. Yours is not to tamper with it. How could your sin Reverse or undo the atonement. It cannot. How can your guilt. Or your folly. Or your shame. Or sin that to you. Has only been discovered in your breast this very hour. How can any of that cause God. To look upon the blood of his son. Having said it was settled. And reopen the account. And refuse the offering now. And take back his reconciliation. And deny the sufficiency of the satisfaction rendered by Christ. And return the curse once more upon his people. You had no hand in accomplishing it. And you cannot undo it. It cannot be done. You know friends... This is a great comfort to the Christian when the depths of sin in your heart begins to be opened out to you from time to time in ways that you wish you'd never seen. And you need to know and remember that it is not your obedience, your faith or your graces in any form that accomplish the atonement for you. It's your saviour. And he atoned for all your sins. And God accepted that atonement for all your sins. 
just to allow, as it were, the hypothetical for a moment. Were God to see then a sin in you that was not covered by the blood of Christ and to say that atonement is not sufficient, this sin is demanding more, Who would bear the wrath of God that would then fall for there be no atonement for one of God's people? Christ. He is the surety. He stood for his people. He is the one who said, none of them will be lost. <coughs> Your surety would be responsible that is his responsibility. That is what he took to himself willingly for you. And that is why we have what we call a substitutionary atonement. Where one stands for us. Now we know that, that can never be. That what is done is done. And it never will be undone. It never will be insufficient. But it reminds us why we need a substitutionary atonement. And Lord willing, we return to that next time. May God bless his word. Let us pray.